0: turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter number 18. Matthew chapter 18. Message in that song, if each of us could reach one. What a remarkable difference that would make. This morning I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, The True Secret of Greatness. Matthew chapter 18 begins in verse 1 by stating, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven The question is where is greatness found throughout history there were a few people who were truly great and there have been many people who thought they were great some even took the title Alexander the Great Catherine the Great, Peter the Great, to name just a few. One source defines greatness this way. A concept heavily dependent on a person's perspective and biases. Whether someone or something is great or not depends upon subjective judgments of one person or thing as compared to another. So those we think who are the greatest among us may not be great at all. The world's idea of greatness and the Lord's idea of greatness can be entirely different. The world says, if you are great, dominate. The Lord says, If you want to be great, be willing to serve. We're going to discover today the path to greatness is available to everyone who chooses to pay the cost. I think it's important that Jesus does not reprimand the disciples for the desire to be great. I think it's the key to understanding this passage this morning. God wants us to aspire to greatness. Jesus does not say, do not aspire to greatness. But rather, he wants us to understand the way to real greatness. The problem is not with the desire, but with our understanding of where greatness lies. We and the disciples have a twisted understanding of greatness and have defined it as being great in this world. But greatness is not standing in front of thousands of people screaming your name. Greatness is not having your face plastered on People magazine or whatever magazine you want to put in that place. Greatness isn't having money or prestige or any other of the world's measure of success greatness is found in pleasing God but the question is how do we do that if I want to be great then I need to follow the example of Jesus finding greatness in service in being willing to be last in order to serve so instead of rebuking the disciples Jesus sat down to give them an explanation and a practical demonstration of what greatness looks like Luke tells us that as Jesus and his disciples make their way back from the mount of transfiguration then an argument arose among the disciples. Luke says in Luke chapter 9 verse 46, and then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Luke tells us that the disciples began disputing among themselves concerning who was the greatest. Now, what brought the disciples to this point? Perhaps this debate began because of envy. Only three of the disciples got the privilege of going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe they thought that made them something special. Maybe the nine who did not get to go up on the mountain were having feelings of insecurity. But if we look at the disciples as a whole, they really were a special group. There's no doubt about it. They enjoyed an elite status of an intimate relationship and walk with Jesus Christ on this earth. But they had forgotten that that was all due to the grace of God. Now I want you to notice with me three things about greatness this morning. First of all, there is an argument about greatness. If you want to look at this, you might turn to Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. When the disciples reach the end of their journey, they get to where they're going, Jesus has a question for them. He wants to know what they have been discussing so vigorously along the way. His question meets only with silence. After all, no one wants to be the one to help to tell the Lord Jesus that they've been engaged in an argument about which of them was the greatest no doubt these men are at this point embarrassed by their argument you know what seemed so important a few moments earlier as they stood before Jesus now seemed silly and immature and incredibly self-centered by the way when this life is over and we stand before the Lord Jesus all of our petty silly little issues will seem just as childish as this but we all know that nothing is hidden from the Lord and according to Luke chapter 9 and verse verse 47 Jesus knew. He knew what the disciples had been thinking. I don't know about you, but I find that a little bit alarming. Alarming to realize that that Jesus knows every proud and jealous thought I might have and that you might have. Eventually, according to Matthew, the disciples asked Jesus directly, the question that has been concerning them who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven it sounds extremely childish and dumb but it would be awfully short-sighted of us if we didn't see our own behavior in that question so before we shake our heads and say well how could they do that we need to acknowledge that we struggle with some of the same tendencies the fact is that the disciples found this a struggle throughout their lives the disciples struggle with the same issue at the last supper on the night before jesus is taken to the cross they again are arguing about the same matter which should cause us to realize That this is not a lesson that we learn once in our lives and it's forever taken care of. We can file it away, but that it is a struggle all through our lives. Why did the disciples get into this argument about who is the greatest? Well, we really don't know who among the disciples are trying to assert themselves. Perhaps it was Peter or James or John who, since they had been up on the mountain, think that they should hold some special place. If that is true, then it is also an illustration of the truth that, you know, God can't trust most of us with greatness because it goes to our head. Perhaps it is possible but that the nine who are down on the bottom are left with the notion that they're not as important, they're not as significant as that inner circle that went up on the top. With Jesus As they walk back I can almost see in my mind This scene being played out The nine disciples Who did not make it up on the mountain Turn to those who have been with Jesus On the mountain and say Well what happened up on the mountain And the three disciples Turn and they say Well I'd be glad to tell you Except the Lord said Don't tell anybody It's kind of like hearing that today, I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. They say, I'm sorry, we just can't tell you what happened, and it certainly left them even more with a sense of insecurity. All of us, this preacher included, have a drive within us that we want to feel important. It's a driving force in our world today. Perhaps it's to be expected in this society in which we live, where young people are taught from the very earliest age the evolutionary theory of the survival of the fittest. You're going to go out into this world, and it's dog-eat-dog, and if you want to succeed, you have to watch out for number one. But as we're going to see, this really is diametrically opposed to what God intends for his people. Notice with me that the argument about greatness leads to the necessity of conversion. Jesus did not answer immediately or even in the way that the disciples expected. In verse 2, it tells us that then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. He called a little child and the the. Greek word that is used here is the general word for children and he stood that child in the middle of this group of grown men. Now what would be significant about that? I think this child must have looked rather insignificant and small here in the middle surrounded by all these grown men and no doubt that is the point. In Jewish society, a child under the age of 12 was not taught the Torah, the law, the word of God. They were considered not worth the effort yet. So to spend time with them was considered somewhat of a waste. But I want you to notice first that Jesus says what you need to be concerned about is entrance, not imminence. Verse 3. And he said, Assuredly, or verily, verily, or something you need to take attention to, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, although Mark and Luke both tell us the events recorded here, Matthew is the only one who gives us the two principles that are found in this verse. First of all, he says, Be converted. The disciples had been arguing over who would be greatest in the kingdom because they assumed that was all they had to worry about. But Jesus says you're forgetting about what is most important of all. What you need to worry about is being there at all. Now the word converted means to turn. It's virtually synonymous with the word that is translated throughout the New Testament as repent. Notice the process of conversion is passive. He says, be converted. This is something that happens to you. It's not something that you do. It means that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we do so by faith. But the conversion is not something that happens because we do something. It's because God has acted in us. It's a process, then, that begins when we accept Jesus and continues as we live out the Christian life. Now, they are, in one sense, as the disciples of Jesus, already converted. But they still need to turn. They need to turn from this self-promotion, this idea that I have to be important he says become as children now this is a call to child likeness not childishness now we understand there's a difference between the two children have some characteristics that the people of God should not copy children can manifest such qualities and you don't have to teach them this how to be selfish how to exercise a temper, those are something that those are characteristics that children have, but that we don't need to copy. But children also have some positive characteristics. They're open-minded. For the most part, they have pure motives and they are dependent. You know, little guys, they can't drive. Heck, when you get them, they can't even walk. They're dependent. They don't have any money to buy their clothes or their food. They're utterly dependent upon others. As they get older, we get more and more and more independent. But the Lord really doesn't leave us guessing about what characteristic it is that he is trying to allude to because he makes it clear in verse 4 that the characteristic of children that he wants you to see is And to emulate is humility. Humility. The double negative there is very important. He says, not, not. I want you to not, not. That means that's really important that you don't do this. Not, not. Verse 3 rules out any possibility of even entering the kingdom of heaven for those who are seeking great things for themselves. And then they need to be concerned about humility, not position. Verse 4 says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the king of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Humble as a child. You now pride is an unusual sin in that we can not see it in ourselves but it's not difficult to see it in other people we have no problem detecting it and detesting it in other people we can even become proud that we're Christians when we get saved there are some positive changes in our lives but over the course of time We can become proud of how spiritual we are. Sometimes this is seen in the air of condescension that we have of others. Our smiling hostility that we seem to have toward this world. And although pride cannot be seen, it can be smelled. Especially by those outside the church. The stench. Of pride among Christians, I suspect, has kept untold multitudes away from the church of Jesus Christ and therefore away from a to, true knowledge of Jesus as their Savior. He says, and receive as a child. Jesus takes a child and places him before the disciples, and he tells them, if you will receive. A child in my name you are in fact receiving both the child and me now he's not saying that the disciples or anyone else can find him through being nice to children but he's saying that how they relate to a child Or to anyone of lowly status would indicate whether or not they really had a relationship with him by a willingness to receive the lowly we recognize and demonstrate that we have already received him to receive a child literally means to serve him when we serve a child in Jesus name You know, we really don't expect to receive anything in return. We know that they're not going to be able to pay us back. Now, you can hardly avoid seeing children at our church on Sunday morning. They're everywhere. And thus, there are opportunities to serve children everywhere in our church. You can work in the nursery. You can volunteer to be a listener or leader in Awana. You can help by being an assistant at the Good News Club that we sponsor at the public school. You can help in some capacity next year in the outdoor basketball and cheerleading program. The opportunities are literally limitless. But what Jesus is saying, our text, is that serving the needy, the powerless, such as children in fact, is serving the Father himself. That is true greatness. We are to receive all of God's people as we do a child, with no thought of their accomplishments, but simply because they are his. Jesus sets the example for all of us. He was a servant of the neediest people of all. He was a servant to those who could not repay him. He was a servant to those who failed him, who betrayed him, and who dishonored him. He was a servant to you and me. And he died on the cross to become our Savior. Third and finally this morning, the danger of being a temptation. Verses 6 and following. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he would drown it in the depth of the sea. We should not think that when Jesus speaks of little ones here, he's speaking literally of children only, although he does not exclude them. The little ones here are identified as those who believe in me and thus I think we should understand this in the sense of believers these are believers especially those who are young and immature in the faith verse 6 states whoever whether they be in the church or out of the church saved or unsaved whoever doesn't matter shall cause someone to sin will be held accountable. This should be a frightening matter for a person who thinks it's funny to get a Christian to sin. If we have ever mocked another believer, if we have ever tempted another believer to do something that we know is wrong, if we have ever discouraged another Christian from following the Lord, This statement should make us very ill at ease. There may have even been an audible gasp from the audience as Jesus gave this illustration of a millstone which literally weighed hundreds of pounds being tied around the neck of a person and cast into the sea. It was a horrifying thought israel did not use drowning as a means of capital punishment but some of the pagan nations did it was to the jewish mind cruel almost beyond comprehension and for a man who doesn't swim i understand that it's a horrifying thought and yet jesus said it would be better For that person who is guilty of causing someone to sin, to have a weight tied about his neck and thrown into the sea. Note also a responsibility to keep from being a temptation. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to the man by whom the offenses come. Sin is a foregone conclusion. Sin is inevitable in this fallen world in which we live. But it's sad that such, it is sad that such conditions exist in the world, but note the word but. But introduces something that's even more terrible than just sin existing in the world. He says, but it is even more terrible to be the one through whom that temptation comes. One commentator wrote, Let teachers in our schools and colleges who deliberately set out to corrupt the minds and beliefs of the young with humanistic and harmful philosophies beware. Let those who exploit little children for the sake of lust and personal gain, beware. Let all those who abuse children beware. Jesus, the kindest and most compassionate of all men, said of such a one that it would be better that a millstone hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Notice the responsibility to remove all causes of sin. Verse 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you. It is better to enter into life lame and maimed, rather than having two hands and two feet, to be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into into life with one eye, Rather than having two eyes being cast into hellfire. Now, Jesus, of course, is using an exaggeration in, advi- in advising one to cut off a limb or to pluck out their eye. Because your, your eye to sin and you pluck out the, your eye, what's the problem? You've still got another eye. The only way you're going to really overcome that is to pluck the other one out as well. He's using an an exaggeration here, but he is saying that sin is such a serious matter that we should be willing to do whatever we can to remove it, even in removing something that is close and dear to us in order not to sin. Sin is like a cancer, and sometimes radical surgery is needed to affect a solution. The point is that a person should do whatever is necessary, no matter how extreme or how painful it might be to keep from sinning themselves or from causing others to sin. If any habit, any situation, any relationship, or anything else causes you to stumble, it should be permanently removed and forsaken. The person who decisively deals with sin in their own lives will be in the least danger of causing others to sin. Should we aspire to greatness? Yes, by all means. But just be sure that greatness that you desire is greatness in God's eyes. We can look to great examples like Daniel. He enjoyed all the trappings of worldly success. But his ambition was to be great in God's eyes, and he willingly gave up all of his worldly power and influence to remain faithful to his God. Let me close with this illustration. During the Revolutionary War, General George Washington walked up on a group of men who trying desperately to move a tree. They were almost able to get the job done, but they just lacked a little bit more strength. It appeared that if they had the help of just one more man, they would be able to accomplish the task. Washington noticed that their commanding officer was standing off to the side, shouting orders and so he asked him why don't you help them And the officer responded very indignantly he said sir I am their commander I give the orders and they do the work hearing that Washington got down off of his horse took off his coat rolled up his sleeves got down with those tired men and he helped them to accomplish their task when it was completed Washington looked at the officer and he said, Sir, if your men need any further assistance, please call on me at any time. The officer said, Thank you, friend. And where might I call upon you if I find that need? Washington said, Well, you'll find me in the commanding general's tent. And with that, he rode off, leaving the commander embarrassed in his wake. He understood. That greatness began with the willingness to serve. Who's the greatest in First Baptist Church? The greatest person in this church is the person who serves others selflessly with no thought of what they might receive in return. The greatest person in this church is the person who does not notice who gets first place. The greatest person In this church is the person who seeks to serve those who can never give anything back to them in return the question is does that describe you let's pray father we really do want to be great we aspire to greatness we want to make a difference in this world sometimes we get hung up on Measuring ourselves by the standards of this world in trying to achieve greatness, and we realize that's wrong Help us Lord to aspire to be great in your sight great in those things that matter for eternity Help us to be servants willing to serve whoever might be in need regardless of their status in this world Or there are a lot of opportunities around us and we can't do them all but You have a place for each of us. And so I pray that you just show each of us places that we might be of service. Waken within us a desire to help, to serve those around us, to serve others as you have served us. Father, there may be someone here this morning that has never received Jesus as their personal Savior. We pray today that they might see their need. Recognize that they're a sinner just like all the rest of us. And that their sins stand between them and heaven. Help them to understand that you have done everything that's necessary. You took your place on the cross to pay the penalties for their sin. We offer that to them today, and I pray that they might understand that and accept it. You have a place for each of us in this world to serve. I know that because we're here. We're still here in this world, so you have something for us to do, some influence that we can have on those around us. I pray that you'd help us to see that need and to step in where we can. Father, thank you for the privilege of serving you. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.